0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Or click the link in the show notes.
1: One of the things when we talk about crop strategies, we'll have clients tell us, okay, wanna grow strawberries, wanna grow blueberries, wanna do saffron, wanna do this, wanna do this. And I kind of tell them that, you know, the safe approach to this is to look at a farm like a classic car, right? Sure, we're using state of the art technology, and sure, it's being built and designed by experts who have been doing this for a long time and very well educated people, but it's gonna take you a while to get a feel for the farm. It's going to take you a while to understand, okay, like, how quickly does it cool down? How, you know, quickly does the humidity disperse?
0: Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and
1: ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran.
0: Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 7. Regular listeners, welcome back. I appreciate you supporting the show. I'm getting feedback from folks far and wide that are discovering the show. I had a conversation with today with someone from Germany who's working on a indoor farming conference and heard about the show and found us through my conversation with Christos Raftiogianis, episode sixty eight. So you never know where listeners are gonna be coming from but if you listen and you keep on coming back, then that's something that puts a smile on my face and I truly appreciate it. If you are new to the show, if you are like the listener I spoke to today, and this is the first episode you're listening to because someone recommended the show or recommended a specific guest that you listen to here, then I appreciate you taking the time. An hour out of your day is not something I take lightly. And I hope I continue to provide education Entertainment and insights into the wonderful world of vertical farming, which is my goal with each one of these episodes. In case you missed last week's guest, it was Zale Tabakman of Local Grown Salads. He talked about his inspiring journey of revolutionizing the way we think about farming. He's got an ambitious goal of providing high-quality, consistent salads and greens to McDonald's at all 35,000 locations worldwide. It's very ambitious, and Zale is definitely cut from a different cloth in terms of his energy, his enthusiasm, and his vision for what is possible in CEA. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I definitely think that one will put a smile on your face. This episode, I speak to Alexander Kappas. He's the CEO of Greener Crop. We were connected at the AgriMe conference in Dubai last year, courtesy of the team at Cultivated. Alexander's got a strong background in business and working with companies in that space, specifically with his time at Groupon, which has proved invaluable for lessons learned. We go deep into the potential that exists in that region, addressing food security issues, and his vision for a greener crop to lead the charge in that area. We talk about challenges and opportunities the focus on resilient crops and the need for education and reliable data to improve this industry's reputation, particularly in the Middle East, where Dubai is an ideal location for vertical farming. This is a valuable episode for anyone interested in learning more about what's happening in that region. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, as always, leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Excited about the guests I've got scheduled, I've got interviewed, we're closing in on the end of season seven we'll take a small break and i've got already episodes recorded for season eight i've got conversations coming up with david farcar of igs jonathan murray of of adapt ag alaric overbay of greenside up farm who i connected with in las vegas alberto aguilar from plant to foods so many great conversations coming up i'm excited to share those with you before we jump into this conversation with alexander here are a few words from the folks that support this show This year VertiFarm takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to VertiFarm, it's the most significant trade fair for next level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. Vertifarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertiform.de. That's vertifarm.de. That's V E R T I F A R M.de. If you're a regular really listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. Alexander Capus, CEO of Greener Crop, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
1: Harry, it's great to be here.
0: So for the benefit of the listener, where are you calling in from?
1: So I'm currently in Dubai, Set the company up here two and a half years ago. So I spend most of my time between the US and Dubai.
0: And giving the listener a little theater of the mind, you've got some photographs behind you (laughs) of what looks to be someone on a horse. So are those your photos
1: or? Yeah, so those are pictures of my other passion in agriculture, which is, you know, beef, cattle, and livestock production. So that's, you know, a bit of a family history. But yeah, fully focused on horticulture and Mm. vertical farming, greenhouse agriculture now.
0: We connected briefly in Dubai and was out there with the Cultivated team. Gordon from Agriculture was out there and a lot of folks. There was some past guests, which was nice to see. So this was the AgriMe conference. Given that you're now stationed in Dubai, is that something that you've been to on a regular basis?
1: Actually, last year, well, I mean, when we met, that was in November of 2022 yeah. so that was the second time we attended it was the first time we actually exhibited there okay. i think it's definitely one of the better conferences in the middle east yeah. particularly in dubai there's a couple other ones that have popped up but those tend to be a little bit too focused this was i think a fairly well diversified session that was attended both by startups as well as you know the more established Manufacturers, technology providers, and so on. So, I think that's actually one of the better conferences for people that are interested in exploring those conferences and attending those in, in the Middle East.
0: So, just to rewind the clock a little bit and give the listeners some context into how you actually ended up there, can you talk a little bit about the pre tech life you had and how that took you and your travels out there? Because I think that's an interesting story.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, after university, I joined management consulting, did that for a year, and hated every second of it. And then was fortunate to be, you know, approached by rocket internet, which at the time was a really a really big deal in the internet space.
0: Yeah, um, What year know, is this? Um, what year would this be?
1: This is 2011. Yeah. And so, you know, I joined one of their portfolio companies at the time, which was Groupon. And, you know, was very lucky to have a very quick, you know, career rise at Groupon. and went from joining as a trainee to... Being put in charge of emerging markets as a VP within a year, um, you know, part of the countries that were under my management as that VP of emerging markets was the UAE, and so I started spending more time in the UAE, and we kind of saw the huge potential in the market and in the Middle East. And I eventually asked to be transferred full time to become the CEO of Groupon Middle East, and I did that for five years. Well, I was a Groupon total for five years, and then you know moved on launched the premium food delivery segment in the Middle East, so you know it was a rocket and company called Fudora that we launched and scaled and well, we launched it in Dubai within just five weeks' time. It was pretty funny. And when I went to my kind of onboarding meeting, they told me that Deliveroo, which is the biggest competitor in, in Europe in the Middle East or in Asia, was going to launch in six weeks and so we had to beat them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, cool, so what do we have? you know what resources do we have in Dubai? They're like, um, what do you mean? I'm like, do Hold we them. have a trade license? <laughs> do we have a trade license that we can yeah, operate yeah. under? They're like, no. Do we have okay. a bank, block, you know, account that we can use now? Do we have wow. a launch team going around? They're like, you're the launch team. Like, Sweet. So we actually managed to go live in five weeks time, and we had you know something like 60 restaurants on board in that time. So that was a really wild ride. And then afterwards, I worked directly for. So you know, first seven years, I worked for Rocket Internet entities. And then I worked directly for Rocket for, for two more years before I joined one of the sovereign wealth funds out here that belongs to the ruler of Dubai. And that's where I actually got my introduction into vertical farming. So, you know, we were looking at, you know, a couple of different investments. One of the companies we were looking at was Aero Farms. And then that's where we kind of really started doing a due diligence of the market, proper market research to understanding how big the opportunity for vertical farming, for hydroponic farming in the region was. And, you know, that's that kind of prompted the the switch eventually into launching Greener Crop.
0: Interesting tie-in to Groupon is, I started my podcasting journey in 2014 with a show called Podcast Junkies, which I still do. met it's, it's a podcast where I interview other podcasters, <laughs> but it's given okay. me a nice world an introduction into networking and meeting other podcasters, and also people who are doing interesting things in the podcasting space. So a couple of years ago, someone from Andrew Mason's new venture, Descript, <laughs> reached out to me because he had started this company, which is now big. It's a great resource for podcasting. It's a, essentially, you can edit audio by editing text, which is fascinating because you delete the word and it deletes the snippet of audio and they've grown ever since. So I was able to have two conversations. He's come on twice for this show. So we have had a couple of conversations with Andrews. He's an interesting guy. And I'm wondering like, if you have any interesting stories from your from your time at Groupon what that experience is like, because, you know, For folks that remember i mean groupon was everywhere (laughs) and across the globe and almost everyone you spoke to knew what it was and was using the feature all the time so it was really pervasive and i imagine it must have been a roller coaster ride for you
1: yeah it was insane you know when i joined i think we were in something like 12 countries and less than a year later we were in 46 countries and so the model scaled extremely quickly and it was the usual you know Play that especially the rocket internet at the time had perfected, which was you know we have a strong HQ that has all of the you know central functions like tech development, digital marketing, finance, HR, and so on. And so whenever you expand into a new country, that is literally a sales and operations team that goes and hits the ground running. And the premise was phenomenal. And if we think back, you know what existed or what didn't exist much more at the time. You know, Groupon always called itself the merchant. You know, commerce operating system, and the Mm. idea was that this was a great way for you to do customer acquisition in a way that you know wasn't possible before. Most merchants, most businesses at the time weren't familiar enough with social media marketing at the time, and so Groupon was a really easy way for you to start you know going into the digital space with marketing. It's a shame that you know they didn't surf that wave any further and take advantage of of the reach that they had. In my opinion, you know they should have been the first ones to launch food delivery, for example. Yeah. Right. Both as a marketplace concept and, you know, as the delivery concept. And so there's so many opportunities where other companies have, have surpassed them significantly, have grown much, much bigger. That You know, we're all at Groupon's feet. Andrew Mason was obviously, you know, the founder, the guy who came up with the idea. And what he contributed to the culture was really great. You know, he wasn't a this wasn't his second or third startup and he wasn't a seasoned entrepreneur. He was a yeah. you know, young guy, smart guy ambitious guy but he kind of understood you know that and something i learned from him i feel is in the startup scene people don't join you for the money you know they hope that the equity might be worth something someday but they're not joining you for you know any short-term monetary gains they're not joining you for the relaxed working hours they're not joining you for the perks and the benefits you know people think that you know like google and massage rooms and sushi buffets and so on I mean, I've not worked for a single startup as had any of those features. But for example, what Andrew did, Andrew had a hard time finding good people for customer service. And mm-hmm. he knew that Chicago had a great stand-up comedy scene and that most of those stand-up comedians had nothing to do during the day. Yeah. And so he went out there and he started recruiting those guys That's and he smart. brought them on board to be, you know, partner management and customer service. And so here you are talking to someone who's a special comedian or an aspiring special comedian. So, you know, whatever challenges he kind of faced, that was a great way to, you know, take the edge off, you know, relieve some of the tension in those conversations and so on. Yeah. And so, you now there was a lot of really cool features. There was a scandal at the time of him, you know, sur- a video surfaced of him doing yoga in his underwear. I remember that was pretty funny. <laughs> The funny thing is I feel like mm. if you if you think about all the crazy stuff that's happened since then, I don't think that would raise any eyebrows. Yeah, it wouldn't even <laughs> register. <laughs> and Andrew's really a great guy.
0: So talk to me a little bit about your mindset because obviously you had the opportunity to go out there. You know, some people would treat that as just something temporary, you know, because I've moved locations pre- in my corporate life previously and it was temporary and then I'd end up back home. Uh, I was living in New York at the time. What was it about Dubai UAE that over the years like slowly started to attract you where you would start to feel comfortable calling it home
1: i think dubai is a great place to call home there's you know high degree of safety phenomenal infrastructure there's a lot of business opportunities the weather is well you can it's, it's always sunny and blue skies now it gets way too hot during the summer but generally you know I prefer this over rain and snowstorms, blizzards and so on so you know the the other thing is that dubai has this incredible mentality and this incredible attitude. You've got a population that's incredibly young, you know, I'd say definitely over 50% of the population under 18. And it's a country that's grown incredibly quickly. So, you know, people are very willing to adopt new technology and they're very willing to try out new things. And so if we look at adoption rates for all types of tech services, the Middle East is usually incredibly high. And there's a reason why, you know, Amazon of the countries that they're in, which isn't that many, I think it's about 30 countries, but they're in two or three Middle Eastern countries because they just, you know, they see what the adoption rates are. Mm-hmm. And this has turned into a battleground for, you know, ride hailing, for micro mobility, for food delivery, for e-commerce, and so on for a good reason. And now it's the new frontier for vertical farming and hydroponic farming. And I think one of the big reasons is that, you know, people embrace change, people know that you know, for a country like Dubai to develop and turn into what it is now. You know, every, nobody on the world doesn't know about Dubai. Everyone recognizes the mortal Arab. Everyone will recognize Burj Khalifa. The palm is literally visible from space. You know, what they've achieved is incredible and people know that this was only, you know, attainable because of the risk appetite that people have and because people are willing to embrace change. And so that's definitely what attracted me to Dubai. And plus, you just saw the massive opportunity where there was no tech, you know, most businesses didn't have websites ten years ago. And they were just so far behind and I think they've surpassed a lot of European countries and a lot of countries in Asia within the last ten years. And so that was, you know, what attracted me at first and definitely one of the main reasons why I'm still here. And like I said, you know, hydroponic farming is the new frontier here. This is a country that and in the neighboring countries, the same goes for the neighboring countries. You know, they depend on over ninety percent of the fruits and vegetables to be imported. That's an $8 billion bill that, you know, these countries have to stem. And so, you know, that's the size of the opportunity here. Land is affordable. Sunshine is abundant. Labor is cheap. And Dubai is within, I think the statistic is that Dubai is within an eight hour flight of, I think, half the world's population. So it really lends itself to being a huge export market once we get to that scale. So, yeah, opportunities, I think is (laughs) the summary. They answered your question.
0: And how often do you make it back to states?
1: I try and come every two months. You know, we started the business here, and we then start looking at okay, you know, with our experience, with our knowledge, with our network in the U.S., where does it apply? And obviously, I think the U.S. is a leading market when it comes to you know hydroponic farming, vertical farming. Most of the big companies started there, and we actually decided to join an accelerator program called Generator that's based okay. in Champaign, Illinois. That's uh, focus on agtech. And, you know, we spent 12 weeks working with those guys and trying to understand where would our market be in the U.S. And what we came up with was that we believe there's a significant opportunity within conventional farming to look at, you know, how a hydroponic farm can be integrated in conventional agriculture and how farmers and and conventional producers can benefit from that and where that fits in. And so... You know, with that in the back of our mind, we've started looking at you know how can we expand into the U.S. We're currently in talks where we're setting up farms in Oklahoma, Illinois, Idaho, New York, and Texas. And so, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to start spending a lot more time back.
0: In the- <laughs> we're in New York,
1: outside of New York, in a town called Jamestown.
0: Okay, yeah, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is Westchester oh, County. So, yeah, yeah, so. People forget how big New York actually is. They just think yeah. New York City. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Thanks for giving us that context. So I'm curious about your mindset. You're working with Arrow Farms. You know, you've obviously had experience in the region. You've led a couple of companies. And so you've done the homework and you understand logistically what it takes to, to be successful. You know, what is it about its CEA that pulled you into actually starting your own company?
1: So there were two things, you know, on the personal, there was a personal reason, which was, okay. you know, I'd spent 10 years in tech building other people's startups, and I felt I was quite good at that. And but at the same time, you know, when you're involved and you're in the trenches, you will see a lot of the mistakes that happen, a lot of the reasons why companies fail. And so I feel like that was something that I had in the back of my mind that helped me back a little bit. And I didn't have a venture in mind that I was passionate enough about to kind of overcome those concerns. And then COVID hit and suddenly, you know, opportunities were very limited. You know, I was at the Sovereign Wealth Fund. I wasn't happy there. I was in charge of tech investments. There was no investments to be made during that time. There was, you know, investment free. And so, you know, then there was my lifelong passion for agriculture. You know, my family's been involved in agriculture for for several generations. This was always something that I knew I wanted to. Eventually retire into. Okay. And um, hopefully sooner than later. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to find a way to combine my knowledge in tech, my experience in tech and launching businesses and scaling businesses with my passion for agriculture. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And then, you know, after the research we did into aero farms, that's when, you know, I, I kind of realized that there was this gap that existed that is rare to find, right? You want to that opportunity, which was we have eight to nine billion dollars worth of food fruit and vegetable imports in the GCC we have technology that is capable of overcoming that deficiency right this is technology that's proven this is technology that's made the Netherlands the second largest food exporter behind the US a country that is don't even know how much bigger but so much bigger yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right and it's not being deployed it's not being deployed at a meaningful enough scale and so that's when we started looking into okay what are the reasons why it's not being deployed on a meaningful scale And so if we look specifically at, you know, the Middle East and the Gulf uh, the Arabian Gulf, which, you know, consists of uh, Saudi, uh, Oman, uh, the UAE, Bahrain and Qatar, and I think Kuwait counts as well. You've got a population that does not have a strong background in farming, right? This is not arable land. It's always been massive water scarcity. So you don't have farmers who are going to, you know, innovate and pioneer this new technology. Yeah. You have very little representation of those companies here you have significant barriers to entry in terms of you know there's a knowledge gap people don't know people don't have suppliers here people don't know where to source the growing supplies our industry is still very fragmented our industry is still very intransparent people don't know first of all the first question anyone will ask is you know what's the difference between indoor vertical farm or greenhouse You know, do I want deep water culture? Do I want NFTs? Do I want vertical stacks? Do I need lights? You know, all those questions are questions that they're not going to get a definitive answer for. They search, right? And so, if you have all of those obstacles and all those sorry, all those questions they need to answer, you don't find answers for, and all those challenges they need to overcome, you're going to look at the opportunity cost and you're going to say, I'm going to invest in something else: gold, crypto, stocks, whatever it is. Yeah. And we said, okay, that's what we want to overcome. And the way to overcome that is by offering a hydroponic farm management service that is comprehensive and allows basically us to support our clients from conception stage, understanding what farming technology would be best suited for your ambitions, your budget, your goals, whether it's a vertical integration into a business or whether it's a standalone investment. We connect them to the manufacturers we work with. We assist with the setup process and then we support them with the day to day operation of the farm. And so that's what we started with.
0: Yeah, when you lay it out like that, it's almost this idea of like first mover status. And it's almost like the people there don't know what questions to ask because, you know, we take it for granted here in the States of having just a rich history in agriculture and in a lot of places in the world. And to your point, that's not something that was considered as a way of life and not something that people, there's nothing generational when you look back and people like saying like, oh, my grandfather had a farm, you know, similar to your story. And I think you have that perspective, and you can see the opportunity there. So, is that really like where you're seeing the most advantage? You know, because of your experience and because of where we are in you know the act tech cycle, that this is really a unique opportunity to not only educate folks in the space, but also be there and obviously be on the ground to show them what's possible. And it's almost like creating a new industry there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure how much credit I can take for it because I'm not the first one else to come <laughs> up with it. Yeah, and, yeah. and COVID did a, you know, COVID played a big part in amplifying the need for food security, right? I mean, it was only a week here where we suddenly had a couple of empty shelves, but the shelves that were empty were lettuces, they were vegetables, they were a lot of the crops that were being imported from Italy from the Netherlands and so on, right? And those were the first, you know, shelves that were empty. And that was a shock because that had never happened before. But of course, you know, I mean, the UAE leadership responded really well. We never had a else again. But I think everyone realized how vulnerable these countries are. And so mm-hmm. there was an immediate shift in government prioritization and public policy and subsidies that were being granted. There was a very quick shift in the regulations where they, for the first time, allowed foreigners to own farming businesses. Previously, mm-hmm. that wasn't possible. They couldn't be the majority owner of a farming mm-hmm. business. And um, they very very quickly shifted that and changed that to make sure that foreigners who you know make up 80 percent of the UAE's population would be able to set up their own farms. And so, you know, I think we were definitely there at the right time. And yeah, you know, you mentioned having a population that has experience in growing and that has history in growing. You know, if you don't have that, you don't even have university courses here, right? So, yeah. you know, it's very very rare that yeah. universities teach agriculture or horticulture. So you, I mean, you're not even having any homegrown talent being developed that you know mm. may look into okay, how do we grow further? How do we innovate, and so on. So yeah, I mean, without outside input, there, nothing would be happening here. So we're definitely here, and you know, in the right place at the right time.
0: To talk a little bit about the model for folks that are not familiar with Greener Corp, what are the offerings, and who are the who's the typical client that you're
1: serving? Yeah. So, you know, Crop. The, the idea was that we wanted to enable the deployment of hydroponic farms and that it didn't matter what experience you have. Right. And so, you know, for us, who do you speak to first? And that was a matter of who can you reach? Who can you reach easily? And who is invested or who has who thinks long term enough and who's willing to invest in something that's going to take several years to recover its investment? who sees the value of contributing towards food security. And so we initially said okay this would be difficult as a pitch to individuals. And so we started targeting corporations. And we started going okay. to food manufacturers, we started going to real estate developers who were, you know, losing, you know, their tenants in commercial buildings rapidly. Yeah. We went to hotels who, you know, had always been struggling to, you know, provide the quality of produce that they wanted to year round it mean, can't be grown locally. There's no such thing as, you know, seasonal produce here. Everything yeah, yeah. has to be imported. So it doesn't matter what season it is in South America or the <laughs> Netherlands or Australia, right? But they you know, they were interested in the, you know, farm to table concepts. And so obviously those guys are all on LinkedIn. Very easy for my sales team to approach them, for me to approach yeah. them. And so that was our first target group. And so the first farm we actually set up was for a client who had already invested in agriculture. They're in the pharma business, but they were investing in agriculture. That was our first client. The second client was a real estate development company in Qatar. The third client were ESG investors. The fourth client was a food manufacturer. And so, you know, initially our clients were all corporations. And now, you know, we're getting to the point where we do have individual investors who are investing and setting up their own farms. And, you know, in the States, the people we are talking to are conventional farmers, so row crop Mm -hmm. farmers. We're now looking at you know how can they benefit from this, and so you know the service model is that we offer farm management and we can be as involved as our client wants us to be, and so we have clients that are completely hands off and we handle absolutely everything. So you know between helping them select the best manufacturer for the farm they have in mind and that we recommend to supervising the setup and doing the handover, and then developing the crop strategy for them. Where do we see demand? What Prices are there in the market? How are we forecasting certain price changes to say that, okay, over the next nine months, we believe this is what's going to bring you closest to recovering the cost of investment, right? And we look at these farms as an investment. And so, one of the yeah. key metrics we analyze for all our clients is our projected capex recovery period. And so, that's something we work towards. And I'd love to tell you a bit more about how we develop our crop strategy. But, you know, the next step is then, okay, once a crop strategy is developed, we start. Sourcing all of the growing supplies, we deploy our team to operate the farm. And so it's you know, our farm manager and our farm hands operating that farm day in, day out. Once the crops are harvested, we have all the post-harvest procedures and we take the crops to the market and we sell them to the market. So that's the full comprehensive farm management solution. And we can scale that back as per the client's wishes and as per the client's expertise. So if the client says, listen, I have my own farm hands, I'd like to use my farm hands, absolutely okay. can do that if the client says i'd like you to hand over to a farm manager that you train for me we can do mm-hmm. that too if the client wants remote farm management and they say listen i'd like you guys to be available to me two or three days a week but uh, you know on calls through sensors through you know the the remote tracking that we do but i'd like you guys to handle the growing supplies and the procurement and the negotiation of those things and crop strategy then we can do that too so we're pretty flexible with how to structure that we are trying to move towards a you know, less boots on the ground and more remote farm management through upskilling through training that we provide for our clients. um, That will just make us a little bit more scalable.
0: It sounds like almost like an a la carte feature where you can sort of mix and match and pick the approach that's suitable for them, depending, like you said, the experience they've had. What percentage of the stuff are you building in-house? Are you outsourcing for some of the specific technologies? Because you did mention like remote sensing. So obviously there's considerations like building your own software and maintaining your own software. you know, and all the other equipment that's needed to keep a farm up to date. And it's a lot of moving parts. And obviously, from the conversations I've had, people have taken a wide range of approaches, you know, building everything in house to, you know, working with a bunch of partners and trusted partners, because a lot of that technology obviously needs upgrades over time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's been really important to me is that we don't try and reinvent the wheel, right? There are certain things that, you know, people in the industry, you know, if you look at, you know, guys like or Hovendorn, who have been doing this for decades. They know what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, their teams are just, their developing team is, is significantly larger than my entire company. So I'm not going to try and reinvent the wheel there. I'm going to try and plug into their technology so and take advantage of everything they've already built. And so we deploy very little, actually, sorry, we deploy absolutely zero proprietary hardware. What we are doing is we, you know, we're building and we're about to finalize our own platform that allows us to plug in sensors that allows us to connect to the control units to support our clients remotely and so the idea really is that you know we are able to train our clients and they start the operation of the farm but we are fully aware of every task that's being carried out we help them develop a workflow and a work plan we help them allocate tasks to staff to make sure that you know staff management works Seamlessly, especially in the U.S. where, you know, labor shortages are a big issue for, for anyone, for any producer. And, you know, at the same time, because we understand what's going on on the farm, we're able to understand how's that affecting inventory. And so, you know, everything's logged. We control obviously all the, well, we start, we're have full visibility over all the growing parameters. So whether it's CO2 level, whether it's, you know, light intensity, whether it's, you know, temperature, humidity and so on. Right. But we're also able to see based on the activities that are being logged, what happened. So what was the germination rate when we transplanted? You know, were there any crops that we had to remove? How often have we been spraying? How often have we had to spray? And then, of course, you know, what are the plants yielding? What are the individual sections of the greenhouses yielding? And how does that compare to the growing parameters? And so through that, we're able to optimize. We're able to constantly monitor and update the inventory to make sure that our farmers, our growers, our partners have all the tools that they need to be successful. That there's no delays there, and at the same time, we're making sure that we leverage that data to give them better supplies. And I think that's one of the beauties of the model: is the more farms we operate, the more we see small levers that make a big difference in production. And we will go from season to season, and we'll switch, you know, tomato seed varieties, and we'll see suddenly a fifteen percent increase in yield. And the fact that something like that is still possible, despite you know all the innovations made, despite all the promises by our seed manufacturers that this is absolutely the best seed that (laughs) suddenly next year's one is 15 percent better of course that depends on the climate it depends on what we're growing depends on how we're growing and so on but you know it's that type of knowledge that we're able to pass down to our clients and make sure that they have i think my goal is that i want them to not have to replicate certain resources and for them to be able to access huge economies of scale by being part of our network
0: I do want to circle back to and give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about your crop strategy.
1: Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I think one of the things that we've been extremely focused on is making sure, like I said, that these farms are able to recover their cost of investment as quickly as possible. But that as we develop a crop strategy, we match the risk appetite of our clients. And the majority of our clients are first time farmers, the first time producers. And so their risk appetite—they're already taking a huge step by investing this technology and going into an industry that they don't know. And so my focus has been on growing crops that are as resilient as possible, both from a you know growing conditions point of view, but also from a market dynamic point of view. And so we grow almost exclusively in all of our greenhouses: tomatoes, bell peppers, chilies, and. We found that that strategy works really well. A, those are among the most consumed crops. And the way we build our business plans, the way we build our feasibility studies, the way we build our forecasts is by projecting that we're going to achieve average yields with these, and we're going to sell them into wholesale. And if I'm able to have a farm break even and be profitable and recover its cost of investment, growing tomatoes, cucumbers, bell peppers, chilies, and selling them to wholesale, then I have a resilient farm, right? What we've been very eager, or sorry, what we've been very cautious to avoid is, you know, falling into the trap where people will be like, listen, we heard you can grow saffron. Why don't you grow saffron? Yeah. Because if three other farms jump on that opportunity, the market's going to, you know, disappear. And what we've seen in the UAE, for example, is that within the last two years, lettuce prices have gone down from $3 a pound to something like $1.20 a pound right and that's within two years and that's for varieties like you know bib lettuce and you know your lola rossos and boston lettuces and so on and so all of those farms that you know had in their budgets that they need to hit you know two dollars a pound to break even are very very far away from that and so you know we just wanted to make sure that you know if i can operate a farm i can sell into wholesale i'm not planning on selling to five star hotels or three michelin star restaurants only and you know take that premium hence on if i can build my strategy based on commodity crops into wholesale, and we can be profitable with that, then we've got a farm that's going to be resilient.
0: Yeah, it's smart because, you know, to your point, if this is their first experience with a vertical farm, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I think if you're sticking with what works and you can prove what works and have them show success, I think that gives them the confidence to then experience and try other crops later that might be a, a bit more risky to sell. But I think there's a lot of, and then as with each success, I imagine that you have, there's more data points, right? <laughs> so you can prove uh, the viability of these crops. What I love is the fact that you're providing this guidance to them, not only from the startup and the maintenance and the ongoing production within the farm, but also the question that everyone has obviously at the end is, once I have these crops, you know, what can I do with them? Where am I gonna sell them? <laughs> you know, cause that's usually a big concern. So it sounds like you've really created a whole end-to-end support system for these farmers.
1: Yeah, that's been the goal. And obviously, there have been a lot of challenges on the way. And, you know, it's been great to see the industry here develop. I mean, you need to keep in mind that, you know, in a country where everything's being imported, there was no real procurement teams for these big grocery stores that right, were yeah. looking at the local market, right? A, farming was very small. And B, it's very, very seasonal, right? And produce wasn't great. Obviously, you've not got fertile soils. So, you know, they're not. Crops are not picking up, you know, great minerals. They don't taste good. They're very watery. And so, you know, you have to, I mean, it's something that over the last two years, fortunately, the industry has grown alongside us. Fortunately, there are a couple of great players like, you know, Pure Harvest and the likes who have, you know, put sea agriculture on the map. And we're seeing the infrastructure and the ecosystem grow around us. And we've been fortunate that we've been able to influence a lot of that. But yeah, the goal really is that we want to make sure that our clients can leave this farm can look at this as almost a past investment
0: really. Yeah, it makes sense. What are the challenges for you as you think about the ways you're supporting your farms and how you build out your team and what are the skill sets that are needed? And obviously given that it's a younger industry out there and less mature, you know, what are you thinking about? What keeps you up at night in terms of, you know, thinking about how
1: to grow? (laughs) I mean, there's there's obviously, you know, there's a very large educational piece that still needs to happen. So, I mean, there's internal, external challenges. I think internal challenges, are obviously, you know, securing offtake. This, the, the market here is, how do I describe it in a nice way? It's, it's very spontaneous. You know, we don't really get any long-term offtake agreements. At the moment, I think we're working with something like 20 different crop buyers and, you know, who are having daily deliveries and who want them to renegotiate quantities and prices every other week and so that's draining a lot of manpower and i think there is a good technical solution there or there must be so we need to get there but the wholesale buying industry is not particularly tech savvy and so how we implement that that's one of the major concerns i have because at the moment it's you know it's draining a lot of our resources we're spending a lot of time on you know securing the uptake for the farms that we operate in the uae and qatar and Oman, and then i think you know from an external point of view you've got the education that needs to happen for people to be interested enough in pursuing the opportunity of setting up their own farm, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of actors in the industry that are being counterproductive, in my opinion. I think there's, you know, we spoke earlier about the fact that it's still a bit intransparent. And I think, you know, there's some reputational damage that's being done by salespeople who are promoting innovations with, you know, unreliable or false data think there's a big issue, yeah. especially out here, where you have every American, every European company wants to sell to the rich Middle Eastern, Easterners. But how many of them have operations set up here? Yeah. So once the farm is built, you know, where is the after sales service? If something breaks, where are the guys? And so, you know, we have places like that where, you know, Spanish manufacturers have built farms here and then they kind of left. And so now if there's an issue, yeah, well, I mean, we'll get the guy to try and help you on Skype. It's not gonna work like that, guys. You know, you need to be here. People are investing tens of millions of dollars in setting up farms. They expect you to be here when there's a problem, especially you sure. know, in the first couple of years where everything should be under some kind of warning. Right. And so, you know, at the moment, I think we're dealing with some, like I say, you know, reputational damage. There's a couple, there's been several headlines about farms going bankrupt, about farms shutting down. And that's affecting a little bit how people view the industry. Now that there's more awareness about it, those headlines, unfortunately, are also being read by more people. and yeah. So that's something that we need to work around. To. We need to make sure that we educate, you know, on why certain things happen and how we plan to counteract those issues and challenges.
0: Yeah, something that I remember from when I was in Dubai was as I was speaking to folks in the booths is a lot of the questions people that were curious about the opportunities there one of the first ones was where are you based are you here in dubai you know what's your support system look like and you know what's this you know will i get support when the farm is up and running and to your point it feels like it's a very important one that probably one of the first questions people are asking nowadays
1: yeah absolutely i mean these farms are complex right and you know, one of the things when we talk about crop strategies, we'll have clients tell us, okay, we want to grow strawberries, we want to grow blueberries, we want to do saffron, we want to do this, one do this. And I kind of tell them that, you know, the safe approach to this is to look at a farm like a classic car. Right? Sure, we're using state-of-the-art technology and sure it's being built and designed by experts who have been doing this for a long time and very well-educated people, but it's gonna take you a while to get a feel for the farm. It's yeah. gonna take you a while to understand, okay, like how quickly does it cool down, how you know quickly does the humidity disperse. Uh, where How is our, how's our CO2 build up? What are microclimates that, you know, we are finding within the farm? And it's going to take some time. And you want to do that testing and you want to do that trial and error with crops that are going to be a lot less expensive to replace than strawberries, right? And so, but yeah, unfortunately, I think, you know, there's I wouldn't call it unscrupulous. That's maybe a bit harsh. But there is a bit of a hit and run mentality here where it's like, okay, we'll sell the tech to them. And this is not a market you can do that with because it's A, a it's a small market, B, it's mm-hmm. they're very inexperienced growers. And you know, already you've got the last generation of tunnel greenhouses that were set up here ten years ago abandoned all over the country. Mm-hmm. And you can't really afford another wave of that. If you have another wave of that with people spending a lot of money on building these greenhouses that are supposed to be a lot more high tech, not supposedly we know they are, but you know, that's the pitch. You know, we can't afford for this to go wrong a second time because otherwise people are just gonna lose interest and lose patience with that. And then we're not moving towards food security and we're not implementing everything we so strongly believe in.
0: That's a good point. I think what happens is that people see the dollar signs from the region and they figure like, everyone's just got limitless pocketbooks. and purse strings and you know there's no shortage of money being poured into it and you know to some extent that that's probably what happened with that first wave but i think you know what you're speaking to is you know it's the reputation almost of the industry that's at stake here because if people that are looking to come out from outside at TEA are exploring the opportunities you know seeing abandoned greenhouse is probably not the best <laughs> thing for them to have any confidence that's going to be something that's going to succeed for them
1: yeah absolutely and i mean it's crazy right because there's also such a big disconnect in You know, there's the growers, there's the operators of the farms, and there's the people who sell farms, right? And those are very much not the same people. And of course, you know, a grower probably wouldn't be the best salesperson (laughs) because, you know, we know everything that goes wrong and can go wrong. But yeah, I think there needs to be some middle ground there. And I think we just need to, as an industry, get to a point where we are a bit more conservative with our projections, where we're a bit more transparent about the things that we don't know. And my feeling is that, you know, with the VC money that had come into the industry over the last two years, People started behaving like tech entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right. And was like, this is a problem we'll solve as we grow. And this is something that once we get more scalability, we'll reach those, we'll hit those, you know, unit economics. It's like, as you yeah. have, like, what's scalability in a farm? You're going to build 10 more farms and they're going to be, you know, unit economic <laughs> positive. Like that's not scalability. Yeah. Guys. that's, you know, replicating the same investment over and over yeah. again, hoping for a better outcome. Right. And, you know, those VC guys were not asking hard enough questions. And so I think people feel like they got away with not, you know, having those hard questions and people are inexperienced like they are here. They're not going to get those hard questions. And so you're going to get away with selling certain ad stuff that is a bit unnecessary. And, you know, you're not going to suffer the, you're not going to be there for the consequences. And so I think, yeah. you know, with that kind of VC money drying up, I'm hoping that that's, you know, as painful as it's going to be for a lot of operators and as painful as it's for some innovators that have great ideas and need money. I think it's good for our industry to go through that right now.
0: And it's interesting that you actually had that experience with Poopon <laughs> to see, you know, <laughs> the heyday of a tech company and some of the decisions that are made. I'm curious, you know, with that experience, with the experience with Greener Corp, how have you grown as a CEO over the years? Oh wow, that's a
1: loaded question. <laughs> I think, you know, it's so humbling to be surrounded by people who are smarter than you, right? And so I'm the only employee in this company, in my company, Greener Crop, that is not an agricultural engineer. I studied business and I worked in tech for the first you know, 10, 12 years of my career. So everyone else is, is an agricultural expert. And it's been incredible to learn everything from them. And obviously, I've not learned everything from them, but everything I have learned is obviously from them and from all the reading I've done in the last two years and conversations with people like you and other people in the industry like Henry and Chris Higgins from Ward America. You know, there's so many amazing people and who are so generous in in the knowledge that they share. And so I think, you know, the thing that I definitely learned during this journey a lot more than in my past roles was how helpful people are if you ask and if you're humble to, you know, admit your shortcomings and you're not trying to overcompensate for everything you don't know by being arrogant or pretending that you know. And so, you know, I really love that about the industry. I really love about. All these people who, and especially in my own team, you know, these are all agricultural engineers that you know had some experience with hydroponics, but they saw themselves eventually managing a farm for someone. They never saw themselves being part of a company that helps enable other people to set up farms, that you know, takes farm management of one farm and says, Okay, listen, there's synergies that we can create, there's data that we can leverage, there's so much more we can do with access to more data with more farms. And so the enthusiasm that you know they've responded to this challenge with has been so inspiring. And yeah, there's so much I've learned on this journey, especially with greener crop. Yeah, I hope this is the last thing I do until I retire.
0: (laughs) What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently?
1: (laughs) There's a lot of tough questions. You know, one of the biggest challenges for us has been funding and determining Mm. and understanding, you know, do we want to take on external funding? How much faster can we grow with external funding? Right, because, you know, What's external funding going to do for me? It's going to, I mean, a Groupon at anywhere else, it'd be, okay, great. If we raise that money, we're going to throw that into customer acquisition, right? And you know you have a product that people want, whether it's food delivery in 30 minutes or whether it's, you know, 90% discount on spa deal, you know, whatever it is, you know that there's a demand for it. People just need to know about it. And so the more people you can reach, that's what you spend the money on. In our case, that's not necessarily the case, right? There is more I can do with more spending. But, you know, me setting up a billboard on the side of the highway saying set up your own hydroponic farm is not going to do <laughs> much. And so, you know, we've had investors propose ideas like, you know, there are ways for you to get a farm funded and you can, you know, get 80, 90 percent of that farm financed. How about you put down the remaining 10 to 20 percent? That way you are you know, tied to the hip with the farm owner. The farm owner has to put in no capital of their own. So you're going to not have that friction point. And, you know, it's it's an additional source for money because you basically now also make profits on that farm. So it's an easier conversion process. It's easier for the client to get financing. It's a clear value proposition, and they're willing to fund that. Now, for me, there's, you know, pros and cons there, obviously. Okay, we give up a lot of the, you know, how dynamic our company is. We give up the fact that we're cash flow positive at the moment and we're able to be working capital positive. And that mm-hmm. means that we can, you know, pursue opportunities as they come around the world. You know, there's no logic to which countries we launch in next or which states we launch in next. We kind of go with the client and we set up our team accordingly. And so that's been a big challenge. Fortunately, right now, you know, there's not a lot of VCs or investors throwing money at Actex. So I've had to ask myself two really in
0: their wounds. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> but it is something that you constantly think about. Is like, could I be growing faster with external money? Do I want to take that external money? Do I want to give up a certain degree of flexibility? And What's going to come with that in terms of the promises we need to make, in terms of the commitments we need to make in an industry where we're all still learning and how we can do this better?
0: Yeah, good point. There's a lot of strings attached when you take on money like that and a lot yeah, of people absolutely. to answer to. So given the audience, and you've listened to some of the episodes here, it's a lot of your peers, colleagues in the space. I've been leaving space and time at the end of these conversations for you, for any messages or anything you have to say to folks in the industry or thoughts that come to mind for your colleagues in the space?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think, I think there's two things that I'd like to, you know, talk about. I think one of them is the opportunity of upskilling. And, you know, we've been speaking to folks in Canada who are talking about, you know, educating, you know, people of First Nations and looking at, you know, people that are in remote communities that struggle with food self-sufficiency how can you you know upskill them how can you train them how can you teach them to do these things i think there's a lot of good that we can do in our industry and i think most people that got into this industry did so either because of the environment because of food security actually those are two biggest reasons and then maybe money if you were a bit foolish (laughs) and but there's a lot of good that we can do and there's a lot of you know great opportunities out there for you know Education for upskilling and so on in underserved communities that struggle with food security, that struggle with employment. And then, you know, on the other side, there's a concern that I have, which is the use of plastic in our industry. And, yeah. You know, for people who pride ourselves in, you know, saving 90, 95% of water and not, you know, destroying any land and no till and, you know, regenerative and so on. We use a lot of plastic. Oh, yeah. Right. And it, I mean, if you've ever seen a greenhouse, a finished greenhouse before they carted off all of the the garbage, all the trash. It is just mounds and heaps and heaps of plastic, whether it's, you know, the stickers that are on the polycarbonate sheets, which are plastic, you know, all the PVC that's being used and being cut off, all the plastic bags that the cocoa peat gets transported in, rock wool, we don't really know how to, you know, how to basically recycle rock wool at this point, you know, whether it's Dutch buckets, whether it's NFT channeled and so on. We use an insane amount of polymers of PVC and plastics. And we have no plan of what to do with it. And I think that's something we need to really be thinking about. And because we don't want to be caught with our pants down when people figure that out. And we should be, you know, responsible enough and we should be mature enough to say that this is a problem right now. Let's encourage people who are working on this and let's, you know, constantly look at how we can reduce the use of plastics because I think it's a huge problem in every industry. And as a new industry, we should not be, you know, repeating the mistakes of every other industry and we shouldn't be walking this line with.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that as I've been having these conversations over the past two years, it's always been interesting for me, you know, to think about like, is this being addressed? Is this being swept under the rug? You know, you just go into the supermarkets and it's just the produce aisle is like that prepackaged salad section is just a wall of plastics if you really think about it. So it's really something I'm glad you brought it up. And I think there is an opportunity there, I imagine, for folks who are looking for you know, unique ways to create materials that can support this industry that won't continue to harm the environment. And I think I would hope that there's folks that are listening or that are thinking about this and working on ideas, because I think there is some potential for some interesting innovations to happen in the space. And this would be the industry that would be poised to adopt, you know, someone that can create something that would be helpful to mitigate our use of plastic in this industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think that's super important. And there's no one I've spoken to about this who's not 100% in agreeance. And I think all of us would be happy to support any entrepreneur that comes up with a solution for that. And yeah. you know, we'll be the first ones to adopt it, the first ones to test that, and we'll tell everyone about it if we get yeah. good results.
0: I had a conversation with Albert Lim, I believe, from VegBed. I think it's a Rock Bowl alternative. So I don't know if you've heard of that or looked into that, but I'm happy to make an intro to you if that's something you're Yeah, please. That'd yeah. be great, yeah. Well, Alexander, I really appreciate this conversation. The hour tends to go by pretty quick <laughs> when you're talking about a, a topic that's near to my heart. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. I'm grateful that we got connected in Dubai and it's fascinating to see what's happening in that space and how you've really you know, doubled down and made it that you're actually there on the ground and seeing firsthand what the opportunities are. So I appreciate you just giving us firsthand knowledge of all the opportunities that are existing in that space.
1: I really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and yeah, the time really flew by. I can't believe it's already been an hour. <laughs>
0: yeah so it's greenercorp.com anywhere else Uh, greenercrop.com yeah Yeah, greenercrop.com sorry and uh, we'll make sure those links are in the show notes any other place you want to send folks to get connected with you
1: no that's great and if you want to connect directly with me my email is alexander greenercrop.com so you know feel free yeah we'll make sure all that's available
0: in the show notes as well so i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story thanks for your time thanks a lot harry thanks again to alexander for coming on the show and sharing his story sharing an hour of his valuable time to let us know what's happening in that region. And I appreciate, as always, the connections I've made at these conferences. I've got so many more coming up from my recent visit to Indoor AgCon as well, which I'll be sharing with you. Special thanks to our season seven title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical form and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E podcast production and marketing provided by fullcast learn more at fullcast.co as a reminder if you're enjoying this show please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcastcom forward slash vfp if you are one of the people listening to this and thinking harry keeps mentioning this rating and review thing i keep thinking i should do it and i haven't done it well let this be the nudge <laughs> for you to go ahead and do that rate this podcast.com forward slash vfp get that rating and review in so i can read yours out on a future episode Tune in next week for another conversation with a fascinating CEO from the world of vertical farming. This time it's Daphne Prius. She's the CEO of Carbon Book. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com.
1: There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.